Union. The Scoop on Sunday. Hello and welcome to The Scoop on Sunday. My name is Thomas Copeland. We're live for the next two hours on Queen's Radio and on Facebook Live as well, so stay with us. Queen's University Belfast is now online and online learning isn't always easy. We're joined by some student representatives uh, who've just been elected councillors to talk about their personal perspectives on the challenges and the opportunities of online learning as well as finding out how different courses are adapting to that change. We're taking a whistle-stop tour of the UK and Ireland this week to learn how different countries are tackling the second wave of COVID-19. Here's what Manchester Mayor, Labour's Andy Burnham, had to say about the government's handling of the crisis. I mean, it's, it's brutal, to be honest, isn't it? What, this isn't a way, this is no way to run the country in a national crisis. It isn't. This is not right. They should not be doing this. We'll be hearing from Manchester, from Scotland, from Wales, from the Republic of Ireland and here from uh, Northern Ireland to learn about the politics behind the pandemic. As the US election draws near, we'll be chatting about how the UK and Ireland could be affected by either candidate taking up office. We've got a Biden supporter and a Trump supporter on the show. We'll be looking back on this week's mental health scoop and we'll be following up on whether we place enough value on the creative industries as emergency funding from the Arts Council rolls in. There's more. Stay tuned for a thought from the week from Dr. Keith Breen. What's trending? The good news stories of the week and a look at the sports news with our brand new sports show. It is all here on The Scoop on Sunday. But we want to hear from you too. Send us your questions and comments over the next two hours and we'll do our very best to get them on the air. Here's how you can get in touch with us. Contact us now. Text 07848866580. Email thescoop at queensradio.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you very much for being with us. Now, last week we learned that Queen's University was going to be taking all learning online unless absolutely necessary. With me in the studio uh, this evening is Mark Gilmore, student counsellor from uh, Arts, Humanities and Social Sciences faculty. Theo Burton, another student counsellor from Engineering and Physical Sciences faculty. Uh, Milda Carvalete from Medicine, Health and Life Sciences. Um, I just about got all the words there out of the faculties. You're all new to the rules, so you're just here giving your own personal uh, perspectives. Mark, why don't we start with yourself? You're doing law. Uh, do you like online learning? What's this transition been like for you? Well, Thomas, uh, I must say on my course, the School of Law have adapted quite well um, in particular. So props to them for that. Um, there's definitely some pros and cons. So obvious pro, you can watch it in your PJs. Never before has that ever happened in the history of student learning. Uh, there are some cons that we didn't see coming as well. Um, so it, it is hard to, harder to engage with um, an actual lecture when it's online. Uh, you can pause it and it will never be unpaused again. It's tricky, I suppose, because law is something that, you know, it's quite lecture-based anyway. There's not an awful lot of need for those online classes. But have you found that your ability, just on an individual level, to engage with the content that's in front of you, have you found that more difficult? Definitely. I think the vast majority of students have. And if someone were to tell me that they hadn't 
I have difficulty believing them. Theo, um, you're studying um, you're studying computer science. Mm. Again, quite a lot of that is online, but yeah. there are physical elements to your course as well that have had to change, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, for example, one of my modules is uh, in the computer science building, building PCs, and obviously, you know, we can't do that online. Um, apart from using a simulator, which isn't quite the real thing, but um, the university has taken steps to try and uh, try and replicate that experience. It isn't just quite the same, though, and, and that's understandable. Do you think that they've done a good job of replicating the experience where it needs to be moved from physical to online? Um, my school in particular, I mean, I think porting a lot of the stuff like coding tutorials, lectures, has been fairly seamless. I, I'd, I'd agree there with the points that made about it's harder to know keep focused and engage all the time but the accessibility at least from my standpoint of having to go back and look at code over and over and over again is easier than having to rely on a lecture in person recording it which wasn't always the case last year so actually what you're saying is that there are distinct advantages to online learning there are but there are also advantages that could have been brought in in any other year to supplement in-person teaching and i think that's something that going forward when we do return to in-person they need to carry on and not just be an exception for this year what do you mean by that is that best of both worlds or well kind of best of both worlds just making sure that lectures recorded that there's accessibility for not necessarily just students who can make it to lectures every day but students who work part-time and maybe have accessibility issues uh, and as well as that for revision purposes um, Mildu, you're studying human biology. Are there? That's probably a course where there, you know there's more interaction. You have things like labs. How has how has your school transformed that to online learning? Have you been have you been satisfied with that transformation? Uh, so in the beginning of the year, we had uh, half mod half modules online, half face to face, and that was pretty well organized. Um, we have a research modules which uh, were all done uh, online because uh, it's major it's majorly with uh, supervisors from different uh, uh, faculties different uh, even areas some don't even work in university they're uh, uh, just employed to help out students and uh, doing it for teams it was safer for everyone and uh, because of that I think a lot of uh, supervisors were m way more uh, compliant and uh, way more uh, considerate. Do, do you think, I mean, it's, it's interesting because each different lecturer will transform yes. the content in their own way. Do you find that all of the lecturers are, are putting the content online in the same way or is it actually difficult to work out different styles? Um, uh, I don't know. Um, we didn't have that many. We have, uh, we only had like four lectures this year so far. And uh, the major, uh, the co coordinators of the modules, they usually put the stuff online in the same way. However, guest lectures, they do it in a different way, and sometimes it's hard to adapt. It's hard to uh, see. Sometimes it's just in unexpected ways, and student gets uh, and students get caught up in a moment, and um, they're a bit lost. But I think. Uh, it just needs a bit more communication between both sides. That's fair. Mark, communication from both sides. I mean, have you been satisfied with the way that your school has communicated with you? What about other students who are on your course or in the same school? Uh, are, are there problems across the board or quite specific things? Well, generally, communication in the school law has always been quite good. So in terms of the way they have gotten us used to online learning, I have no complaints there. Uh, it's more just the general uh, cons that come with it in terms of the lack of engagement. And obviously this will differ between lecturers as well. 
and the effectiveness of a lecturer in actually being able to use online learning uh, is very much in being able to weaponize its advantages. Weaponize. Uh, so for example, we had one lecturer who showed his dog at various, <laughs> at various points. That's an advantage, you should be paying more for that. Student <laughs> engagement just went into it rocketed. Um, but then we had another lecturer who um, used YouTube videos, free public YouTube videos in the place of lectures. And that, honestly, I, I don't think it's degree worthy. Do you think that, I mean, you're paying the same amount of money this year, all of you are paying the same amount of money as you would have in any other year. Do you feel as if that the learning that you're getting at the moment, your personal perspectives, you know, you're not representing anyone, do you think that learning is, is worth the amount of money that you have paid in previous years? I mean, is it really the same standard of learning? I mean, generally, I don't think it's worth the money anyway. <laughs> in an old year, you know, very much you are paying for the piece of paper. And you're also paying for the student experience. And you're not getting the student experience this year. You're not getting societies in person. You're not getting many in-person events, uh, as you normally would. So in terms of paying for, for YouTube lectures and things like that, definitely not. But then uh, what can the university do? Well, I suppose the university could do things, Theo, could they not, in terms of, in terms of uh, more engagement online? Uh, what, what, what's your thoughts there? I mean, do you think that you're, it's fair that you're paying the same amount this year as you have for previous years? Is the standard of learning and teaching really the same? Well, you know, speaking uh, from my own perspective, yeah. I think that certainly paying the full amount for this kind of year, even though it has been very unexpected, um, it shouldn't be the case. You know, it has been a different standard of learning, and at least I can speak personally from my school. I think my school's adapted well, so my lecturers have tried really hard to adapt and change the content. But do I think it's worth the full amount? No. I mean, if you're paying for a package holiday and you turned up and you weren't getting complimentary drinks, would you be entirely happy? Because, you know, as Mark said, like a lot of the student engagement and a lot of the student experience, well, it's not there, is it? And, and there's nothing, well, there's not much that can be done about that, but I do think there is some stuff that can be done. Uh, what sort of things do you think? Um, well, you know, I, I think about freshers this year, you know, them missing out, first years missing out on all of the experiences that they make for friend groups. And there's lots and lots and lots of students who don't have those friend groups to support them through their times at uni. Um, and I think, and, and this kind of feeds into a bit of my role as a digital champion at university, um, I think, you know, there does need to be a greater look at making those communities, putting them in place and then letting students engage in them. Because at the minute they're not there, and rightfully so, the transition focus has been on the academics, getting that right, making sure people don't fail their exams. But, you know, an entire important part of the student experience has been left behind. It's been a very fast six months. Do you feel as if that the social groups that you have, uh, you're in second year? Yeah. Do you think the social groups that you developed last year mm -hmm. have, have really not been the same this year? I mean, has it been a, a detriment to the kind of experience that you would want to see that you can't see people physically? I, I kind of feel that way. You know, the people that I knew last year, I see very, very little of because we're not going to lectures online. Right. Is that a same, uh, lectures in person, is that a same kind of experience that you're feeling? Well, well, actually, it's a bit of like a compare contrast thing. The friends I've made through things like clubs and societies and stayed active with, I've stayed really tight with those friends. But the friends that I kind of kept up with through lectures, labs and practicals, it's just fallen off. And, you know, kind of part of my feedback as a representative a large proportion of students felt that when they were sitting in classes on Zoom or on whatever, 
they're not engaging with other students, they're not making friends, they're not making support structures that helps them. Milda, what about, you mean your support structures, you're learning from home, we're all learning from home, have you found it more difficult to, 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 to maintain the uh, relationships with other students who are on your course? Because quite a lot of the learning that we do at university is from each other as much as it is from a lecturer, is that what you find? Yeah, I definitely found it way harder to keep uh, in contact with the uh, friends on your course. And even, uh, you used to see them every day, at least uh, in our course, we used to have lectures every single day uh, for two years. And uh, we became quite tight, but because we would uh, work together in practicals, we work together on projects and everything. And now this year, everything is just online and even group projects. Some students, they don't engage that much. They don't even turn on the, their camera. So you're technically talking with a bubble, which is not, not, a, not a like it's not a university experience. You don't want to uh, be doing that. Theo, you're a digital champion, like you mentioned. Uh, Milda just mentioned that some people, you know, not really engaging in the online learning and the spirit of things, not switching the camera on. If you are a student, who is suffering uh, and finding it difficult to adapt to online learning, you're a digital champion for, for the SU. Where can you go to try to get a few answers and a little bit of help? Well, we host uh, drop-in sessions, um, mainly kind of cater towards students who have difficulties using Teams, using Canvas and things like that. But we're starting to branch out and try and work up some plans and work up some ideas to try and create those kind of digital communities, even within like schools and modules and courses. Um, because I, I mean, I you know echo that same experience. I join a class, and I could you know if this was a different year and and it all was normal, I could probably know many many people in my course. I don't know any of them any of the new ones in my course, um, and I feel that's pretty detrimental for new students and for returning students as well. Um, so yeah, the, us digital champions, we try um, and we're trying to build kind of a platform for that now, or at least a few ideas for schools and faculties to scale and build those kind of communities where people can make friends and links. Uh, Mark, um, we've talked about this before on this show. The university, earlier on in the year, uh, made a campus commitment to face-to-face -face teaching. They said you will be receiving face-to-face -face teaching. Um, do you feel let down at all now that the university has decided that they're not going to continue with face-to-face -face teaching? Well, I suppose I didn't allow myself to get my hopes up. Um, I believe what they originally said was, um, I believe what they said was, where possible, face-to-face uh, -face where possible, and it, you could kind of see it coming that that wasn't going to happen with all the students coming back at once. Um, so that's interesting. You actually think maybe that that was an unwise commitment and that they should have known that something along these lines might happen. Yeah, no, I think they should have just gone all out online learning, but then if that were to happen, the consequences were <laughs> would be no students would come up uh, and there would be trouble with rent, be trouble with elms. Of course, what we see now is that Queens have had to put a rent break uh, on elms and students have, uh, they have the opportunity to opt out of rent and go home themselves anyways. But is that, that's kind of a retrospective thing, Mark. I mean, is, is your opinion that the university probably should have been a bit more clear and a bit more realistic from the get-go that there was going to be basically online learning for this semester and that that face-to-face -face teaching commitment was, a, was an unwise idea. I mean, it's all very well saying this in hindsight. Uh, I do recognise that. But I think a bit of realism at the time would have benefited uh, as well. 
Uh, I mean, uh, predictions saw that things were going to get worse. It's obvious uh, as COVID progressed uh, into the winter months that things weren't going to get any better. So I think from the outset it would have been a lot more clear. Communication would have been a lot more effective if the university had just said, you know what, it's just online learning, at least for this semester, like other universities have done, uh, such as Cambridge, that rolled out for entire year back this morning. Yeah. Theo, uh, Mark mentions communication there. Uh, in your role just as a student, do you feel as if communication from the university has been good? Um, well, I'd say it's a bit of a mixed bag. Like, I remember back to March 12th. Um, yeah, March 12th. <laughs> uh, yeah. Good All memory. the way back there. All the yeah, way yeah, back yeah, to March 12th. Um, and even though, kind of, I think it was on the 4th of March, the first case in the university was confirmed, the 12th of March the, was when they committed, okay, we're cancelling large-scale events, we're going to be changing up things and taking extra precautions. I think communication at times where it's mattered most sometimes has been really important and has been successful. But I think kind of getting clarity out to students about what their first semester looks like, whether they're going to be staying in accommodation, whether they're going to be online or in person, that was something that was needed to be focused on really important. And at least, you know, my personal experience as a student, I came across a lot of people who were very confused as to what was going on, whether they would be in person, in, in classes, sitting in a lecture bench, or on Zoom. Milda, um, we're, we're running out of time here, but you were nodding along to that. Is that the kind of impression you've got from students as well, just a, a general sense of confusion at times? Yes, and especially in this semester, um, we have a lot of uh, Erasmus students, and I think that they re they're they a very big disadvantage because already they, they come, their English level, yes, it's good, but also s I was an international student, so I know how you feel when you just come to this country. And some of them, they didn't even know that where their classes are going to be, if they're going to be classes a day before uh, university semester started, which was just... It was just a really bad communication, I would say, with the, that part of the uh, university community. Mm -hmm. We will be looking at that issue on this show as well. I think next week, or the week after, we'll be, we'll be chatting to some more international students and Erasmus students. Thank you very much, all three of you. We have a really busy show tonight, so we're going to have to leave it there. But thank you, uh, Mark Gilmore, Theo Burton, and uh, uh, Milda Carvality. Um, thank you very much uh, for joining us on the show. Okay, I'm joined now by uh, Neve McMullen from our news team. Uh, this week, we launched the brand new podcast, The Mental Health Scoop. Here's a little clip of Friday's show. Do you think it did have a negative impact on your mental health? Like, did your anxiety increase? There were certain days I found harder than others, and I just find myself quite overwhelmed sometimes. It just, I think it was the fact that I was just staring at the same four walls for 10 days straight. It was obviously just going to have a negative impact on me. I just find myself very overwhelmed quite often and just quite lonely, and I just felt like I was both physically and emotionally drained. That anxiety, did it, did it like have anything to do with actually the worry of leaving your house once you had caught the virus? Uh, I think I was just delighted to finally leave the house, but mm. there's always just the fear of other people looking negatively towards you and like not wanting to come near you after it. So that just ha does have negative impacts on your thoughts and feelings as well. Um, with me right now is Neve McMullen, the host of The Mental Health Scoop. First episode went out on Friday. Neve, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Not a problem at all. Um, on Friday's show, you were discussing an issue in particular. You're going to do themed episodes for your podcast. What were you talking about on Friday's show? So I wanted to begin the podcast with um, 
an issue that sort of has obviously increased since coronavirus, so something that was has been experienced and reported more so since the virus, and that was anxiety. And globally, there was a recent update, and one in 13 people have experienced anxiety. And in, in relation to students, um, that rise has been 80% of people have reported uh, like an actual increase in their mental health issues. So that's why I wanted to address that topic for the first week of the show. And it was clear that there was a lot of people that have been affected by it. Like as, it, as in my guests as well on the show, they had a good, they gave their own perspective on what they'd been through since their social isolation period started. And, and that social isolation, yeah. is, it that, is it being isolated from other people that, that you're finding speaking to young people is the problem that's causing some of that anxiety? Yeah, well, at first I speculated it was it actually just creating anxiety and like people that hadn't experienced it before, but from, from more research, it has showed that it's actually just increased the intensity of the actual problem. So yes, because that social impact and social sort of interaction has been cut out of people's lives, I think that's what's having the toll on students' kind of mental health. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned before, and it's experience that you've had as well, yeah. the anxiety of feeling when you're out of your period of isolation. Mm -hmm you feel a bit nervous about yeah. going out into the world. Tell us about that. Well, I remember, well, in my period, it wasn't too long ago, but um, I the thing that worried me most and raised my anxiety was the fact of actually leaving the house again. It wasn't so much... A lot of people report that they're scared of what other people will think. I wasn't so worried about that. I was more worried about actually re-catching the virus. Um, that's also, like, you know, thinking about, you know, it's okay to be in your house in 10 days. Once you get through it, you're like, thank God, but I couldn't do it again. And that's what kind of worried me. So I was worried about going back out, out again. I had to wear my, my, my mask all the time. I never really took it off. And, um, you know, people would always be saying, oh, you shouldn't be wearing your mask here. There's no need for it. But I would always wear it because I was so, you know, scared. And then again, Alana reported the same. She kind of thought that she, like, people were going to be like, uncomfortable around her presence and that is going to have an impact on your thoughts and feelings negatively. There was really tragic news this week from Manchester. Mm -hmm. uh, a 19 year old student uh, we're told who suffered from severe anxiety uh, found dead in his room in halls of residence. Um, it kind of really does bring it home doesn't it that the harm that this pandemic is ha having yeah. on, on people's mental health and physical health across the board. Yeah. Uh, I know it's different for everyone, Neve, and you find this on your podcast. What kind of advice did you take away from Friday's show about sh what students should do if they're dealing with isolation mm -hmm. and having, you know, a real sense of anxiety? Well, on my personal experience, it's all about what I, what I really clarified in the podcast was what I, is my main belief, which is keeping a positive attitude. So PMA all the way, and um, you, you just have to remain positive. You have to, you know, you, ha you know, you have the virus. You can't do anything about it. So there's no point of moping around and being sad about it. You do the most you can. And then on other people's perspectives, a lot of people would say um, that the best thing to do is to keep busy, maybe get on top of uni work, um, get into some physical activity. Um, do things that you enjoy and that will maybe take your mind of the fact that you're not allowed to leave and that's really the best thing to do is just to make sure that you're busy all the time, your mind is occupied and practicing your physical and your cognitive ability. And you were talking as well on the show to uh, Katie Naclera, uh, yeah. SG Officer for Welfare. Yes, We've had her on this show as well. Yeah. Give us a brief idea if you can of, of if, if you are a student who is finding isolation, being at home, maybe even online learning, quite difficult, where can you go to get a wee bit of help with that? So I'm not sure if most Queen's students are aware, but there's actually two um, kind of services and it's provided from Queen's and the Students' Union. So I'm going to um, talk about 
The Queen's Wellbeing Service, which is Inspire 24-7, um, it's a wellbeing support, um, it's like a support group and you can contact them anytime, the, all the details on that are on the website. And there is a drop-in service um, in the Students' Guidance Centre, which um, is on a Monday to Friday, 11 to 3. And then if we go over to the Students' Union, there's also services provided from them and that's advice SU. Um, studentadvice at qb.ac.uk and the Student Officer Welfare, which is um, Kitty, um, she'll be able to reply to you on suvp.welfare at qb.ac.uk. So there's plenty of help there if you need it. Yes, uh, and also for Queens, uh, not for non-Queen students, we have the Lifeline Samaritans and obviously Tech Shout on 85258 as well. Okay, uh, loads of help there if yep. you need it, so encourage people really to reach out if you're feeling like you're not okay. Uh, Neve. what have you got ready for next week's show? You're, so, you're, pl you're planning very far in advance. It's brilliant. Yes, well, I, I want to show that to people that, you know, if I'm doing a mental health podcast, it doesn't have to be on quite sad issues. I'm going to have this podcast based on positivity again. Well, a lot, like a lot of it's going to be based on positivity and motivation. Um, I'm going to have some guests on again, and we're just going to get talking about how to keep motivated and have a positive attitude through this kind of time that's so uncertain. Thank you, Neve, uh, very much. That's Neve McMullen there from our news team and host of the Mental Health Scoop Fridays at 10 a.m. and in all of your usual podcast places. Thank you very much. Right, let's move on. Time to bring a smile to our faces. Rebecca Dobbin Donaghy from our news team is with me to bring us some of the good news stories of the week before we talk about some not so good news stories of the week. Rebecca, what have you got for us this week? Thomas, how are you? Yes, um, there's been actually quite a few good news stories this week as well. Um, my first news story is a very important first um, in that Pope Francis has endorsed civil unions for the first time as Pope. Um, he said in an interview that homosexual people have the right to be in a family. They are children of God and have the right to a family. Nobody should be thrown out or made miserable over it. And what we should have is a civil union law. That way they are legally covered. I support that. Okay, fantastic. Why is this so important um, to you, I suppose? Well, yeah, it's, it's very important in that we need to look at the position that the Pope is in himself rather than just another person saying that they support civil union because... The bar is really on the floor if that's all that's going to impress people at this stage. But the Pope saying it is, like across the globe, people still tend to use their religion as an excuse for their homophobia. So for that reason alone, Pope Francis' comments on same-sex civil unions mark a very welcome watershed. And if they lead to a real change within church policy and opinions within churchgoers in general, that's all the better. Some good and bad news, I suppose, uh, in the world of uh, football. Marcus Rashford back in the news. Yes, Marcus Rashford, once again, being an absolute legend. Um, <laughs> proving why he was awarded his MBA earlier this year. You don't need to be a Man United fan or even a soccer fan to be a fan of Marcus Rashford. Um, we've watched this year as he's constantly campaigned for, to end child food poverty across the UK. Um, after a campaign he led earlier this year, the government changed its policy to allow 1.3 million children in England to claim free school meal vouchers during the summer holidays. Okay, and why is he back in the news this week then? Um, well, for, it started off very negative in that this week Conservative MPs rejected a bid to extend free school meals across half-term in England. Um, immediately, Rashford was back petitioning against the vote. Um, I don't know, you've, pro you've probably seen these petitions before online. It takes around 100,000 signatures be able to be considered for a debate in Westminster and last night when I checked it Marcus Rashford's petition was on 784,000 signatures and counting it was going up by the second it was mad so 
Despite um, the MP's vote on Wednesday, councils from both sides of the political divide have agreed to supply vouchers for pupils to make sure the children do not go hungry this midterm. Um, it's important to know that Scotland, Wales and Northern Irish governments have also continued the, to supply um, meals over half term. And you've got another well. sports story for us as well, Rebecca. Yes, it's not a sports story. I don't know if this is good news or not. It happened. <laughs> um, it's hilarious. But yeah, so widely regarded as one of the best, if not the best, soccer players in history. Um, Pele, he was actually named as player of the century in 1999 by FIFA. He is massive regard in soccer. Um, but at 80 years, of old, 80 years old, he said that there's very little he hasn't done in his career. He's written many books, he's scored many goals, he's fathered children, he's planted many trees, and he decided, the only thing lacking is the musical memento of my life. Right, okay. Um, um, where's this leading, Rebecca? I'm slightly hesitant. Um, yeah, no, obviously that's all you need as a soccer player, is a musical memento of your life. Um, so this week he actually released a single alongside Grammy award-winning artists Rodrigo and Gabriela. Um, it's called Accredito Novio. My um, pronunciation yeah, may not gorgeous, be... Yeah, you'd almost believe you were Spanish I know, yourself. I know, it's pronunciation of it there. It means listen to the old man. So it's about magic, um, economics, goats, African chickens, Cuban cigars. There's a lot going on in it. It really has it all. To be honest, I don't really know... It, I don't know what it was he was going for, but it's, it's actually not that bad. It could have went really badly wrong, but I listened to it. It's very catchy. All right, well, that's the official review from yeah, the Scoop, Rebecca Dovendonaghy. That's, Dove that's a hot take on Pele. <laughs> really, really not that, that bad. Thank you, Rebecca. Uh, Rebecca Dovendonaghy there from our news team with some of this week's good news stories. Uh, still to come on the show, we'll be hearing about the politics of the pandemic in every corner of these islands, talking to student journalists on the ground. Uh, how are the creative industries adapting to this second wave as hospitality has been forced to close? We'll be taking a look at the sports, what's trending, and our thought from the week for uh, from Dr. Keith Breen. This is The Scoop on Sunday. The time is half past seven. Now, the US election is only eight days away. This is a race that began two years ago, and over $10 billion has been spent. $10 billion more spent on the US presidential and congressional race uh, on, in November. As polling day draws near, Joe Biden holds a healthy lead in the national polls, but in some key, swing, in some key swing states, the gap is narrowing between the candidates. This week, we saw the final presidential debate between Donald J. Trump and Joe Biden. It was a much more calm, substantive debate, but will it have made any difference? Just before the show, I chatted to Kevin Lynch, US college student, who's on the ground for us in Washington, DC. Here's what he had to say. Hi there, Kevin. Thank you so much for talking to us, as always. Second and final presidential debate was this week uh, on Friday morning for us. What were the big talking points out of that, Kevin? Were there any winners, any losers? What are people talking about? Yeah, so again, thanks for having me back. So I think with that debate, I certainly think it was um, less eventful than the first one. I think that um, it was definitely more boring, which I think that people, I, I bet they appreciated a little bit. Um, obviously not not totally boring because there's still Trump and Biden, but I think that the key takeaways from this is that I don't think either candidate really gained much round. I think they kind of um, both went in there trying to prove to be kind of uh, the right person for the job at the right time. And I think that 
Um, I, I wouldn't say there was a specific winner, but I think that I think I've kind of said the similar thing on the previous shows. I think Trump really needs some more momentum right now. And Biden needs to kind of be steady. And, and it seems that Biden remained steady and Trump didn't really have much. He didn't really have any, any true memorable moments. He had a few things, um, a few comments that were, uh, I guess, a bit memorable attacks on Biden. But there wasn't really anything too eventful that I think would shake up an election, let alone this one right now. And it was a different kind of debate, wasn't it? Uh, what The electoral, uh, the commission for presidential debates had changed the rules. Uh, talk us about, talk us through those rule changes. How did that change the, how, the, how the debate went? Mm -hmm. So um, I believe that they had a new rule this time where they would, they could turn off the mics when the person had their two minutes um, response time. And I, I believe I read somewhere that they didn't actually use that. I heard that I think that both candidates um, actually did follow that rule where they, they could have turned off the mics, but they didn't. Um, and yeah, I believe that in terms of that. And I just think it was a bit more a bit more substantive than the other ones. There were two takeaways, Kevin, that, that I certainly noticed anyway. The first was a comment um, that Joe Biden made about the oil industry. He said, quote, I would transition the oil industry, yes, because oil industry pollutes significantly. Uh, and, and Trump really jumped on that in the debates. Some of the swing states that Joe Biden will really need and Trump is trying to keep hold of, Texas, Pennsylvania, Ohio, are places where the oil industry is significant. That comment, moving away from the oil industry from Biden, do you think that might have an effect on how people vote? You know, I, I I don't really think it will. In my, I mean, other people might disagree, but in my personal opinion, I don't know if it will because I don't, I don't think that that comment was very out of touch with sort of the public's expectations in general. I think that if you take um, even someone who lives in those states, I think if you take the average person, I think that one would probably assume that the goal, humanity's long-term goal, is to be green energy, energy efficient, and not have to use these products. And I think that's sort of what the average person would expect. I think that most people assume that in the future we won't need to use oil. And I think that, um, I think Joe Biden's going to definitely need to do a bit of messaging with that because I think that Trump is good at kind of twisting his words and making him seem like, oh, he wants to shut down oil. But I, I think Joe Biden's message with that was kind of in line with what I think everyone kind of assumes is our long-term goal as the United States. And I, yeah. And the other, the other big thing that Donald Trump attempted to make a political point out of, and may have been very successful in doing so, was pointing out that Joe Biden has been in Washington. He has been a senator for, what, 46 years, then vice president for eight years, and repeatedly throughout that debate he was saying, Trump was saying, why didn't you do anything about these issues, Biden, when you were a senator and vice president? Does that issue have much cut through? I mean, are the general public looking at Biden and saying, you know, he's, he, he's, he hasn't achieved these points so far. Why should we expect him to do so if he's elected president? So I definitely think that those lines stick. But I just have a, like, my perspective on that whole situation is that I think that it, it could stick more. But I think that the Trump campaign's messaging is just a bit all over the place. Because you have, for 50% of the time, they're saying he's a career politician who does nothing. And then the other 50% of the time, they're saying he's a radical who's going to transform the country and change everything. So it's kind of like a hard, like, so, so it's kind of like a weird kind of like blend, like, oh, so is he going to change everything or is he going to do nothing like he's always done? And I think that it certainly would stick more. But I think I think the real message that's sticking is that Biden's a radical 
but I think that's almost being watered down by them calling him the establishment who's going to do nothing because it's kind of like is he going to do nothing or is he going to do a lot. And that that point about Biden being a radical is that having a kind of cut through with the middle ground voters, maybe middle ground Republicans, that he needs to vote for him on election day. Definitely, I think that's the I think that's the strongest attack point, and I honestly think that they this whole radical narrative. I don't think it would have. I think they would have used it no matter what. But I think that they sort of developed it around the time that Bernie was kind of lead, Bernie Sanders was leading the pack. And I think they kind of kept the narrative going because Joe Biden's kind of run as more of a moderate figure and kind of a establishment. But I think that a lot of people are who I think a lot of people who don't really know his policies that well or don't really like kind of like have a deep understanding. All they think here is like, oh, he's a radical. He's a he's a socialist. And I think that that's definitely the number one sticking point, because anyone at least who I know who's on the fence, that's that's their um, kind of point of contention with the race. And the irony, of course, Kevin, is that the real risk to Biden on election day will be the progressive folks who like Sanders, um, who are much more radical, not turning out for Biden because they don't Mm -hmm. think that he is radical enough. I mean, that's the irony is that the Trump campaign's painting him as radical, but Joe Biden actually needs some people to think he's radical to turn out for him on on election day. Those kind of constituencies, the people who liked um, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, does it look at the moment like they're going to swing behind Biden and turn out to vote? So I definitely think that there are going to be people who don't turn out, similar in 2016, or people who voted third party. I think there definitely will be those people. But I, I don't, it, based on the knowledge that I have and based on kind of like the impressions that I'm getting, I think that a lot more people are going to be a lot more people are going to be getting behind Biden this time than they did behind Clinton because I think that people realize that the stakes are a lot higher and I think that it's not a debate over um, kind of oh Hillary versus Trump what's going to be different I think they're looking at four years of Trump and thinking wow I don't think even though Biden's not progressive enough I don't think four four years of this is going to dig us into a deeper hole and it's going to be worse for progressive causes at least with Biden we can lobby him and we can kind of convince him to do stuff I think that's where they're coming from so I think a lot of more people are going to coalesce around Biden than I think they would have with another candidate. You've never, I've never asked you this question before, uh, Kevin, and you've reminded me, you've just mentioned a third party. Uh, in 2016, there was uh, Dr. Jill Stein from the Green Party and the Libertarian candidate, Gary Johnson. Um, are, are there any third party candidates at the moment who are making a splash? So there is, I'm totally forgetting the Green Party candidate's name. I think Howie Hawkins is the Green Party. And also, the one that's actually been, I've been hearing a lot about is Joe Jorgensen. That's kind of the one. But again, I've been hearing her name, but I really don't think that she's going to have much of the vote. I think that she's made an impression where people recognize her. And I think she is going to get some people who are turned off by both people. But I'm honestly thinking, like, I don't think she's going to... I don't think she's even going to reach the numbers that Jill Stein got last time. Okay. Really. And, and, not really much splash. Yeah. And, and Kevin, you mentioned there uh, before we went on air that members of your family had already voted. We've talked in the past about how mail-in voting has been quite significant. How much of the country has already voted uh, even before election day? Um, I'm not sure of the exact uh, percent or percent of eligible voters, but I know that the people that have voted already either by mail or early in person has gone up by a, like, a lot compared to the past years. I believe that, I think that I saw today that in Texas, 80%, if you take the population of people that voted in 2016, 
80% of that has already voted early. So th their voting totals is going to be up by a lot. I think it was like 40,000 voted early in 2016. And I think that roughly like 250,000 voted already early. So the numbers are going up and up and up, um, especially with voting by mail, a lot more people are voting. And it's definitely, it's definitely a lot, a lot more people than you. And a final thing, Kevin, I asked you last week for your prediction. You told us that if you were using your head, it would be Biden, but you had a gut feeling that, that Trump was still in the mix and could pull it out of the bag. Anything changed this week for you? Um, <laughs> I would say nothing. I wouldn't change my official prediction. I would say um, I'm leaning slightly more toward Biden now by a little bit than I was last week in terms of who I think is going to win. I think his chances are have remained steady to a point where it, it appears as if though he's going to he's going to take this. But again, I think it's probably the same as last week. You never know. My Trump always manages to kind of pull these victories out. Absolutely. Uh, Kevin, thank you so much for talking to us. It's always a pleasure. Of course. Thanks for having me. That was Kevin Lynch from Washington, D.C. I'm joined on the phone now by Jude Perry, uh, former head of Young Fianna Gael at QUB, leaning towards Biden, uh, Tom Foley, uh, a PPE student at QUB, who's leaning a bit towards Trump. Thank you both for joining me. Jude, why don't we start with yourself? You watched the debate on Friday. Uh, what were your impressions? What stood out for you? Well, good evening, Thomas, and thank you for having me on. And I did watch the debate that took place um, in Thursday night in Nashville, in Tennessee, and I thought it was a much more civil affair than the first presidential debate. Um, I thought, to the credit of the moderator, um, it was ran much more smoothly. And um, in fairness to President Trump, he uh, kept the rules much more, um, much more than he did in the first debate. I think largely the polls reflected that Joe Biden was the the winner of the first debate. Um, I think. Donald Trump really needed to change things or make or Biden you needed to make a massive mistake in order to change the race which didn't happen I thought the debate was largely success for for Joe Biden um I think Trump's change in tone from the first debate was largely due to polling which reflected um people weren't really pleased with his rancorous performance at the first debate so in terms of who won I I think it's been pretty clear that Joe Biden came out um unscathed from that debate and he was the successful candidate. And Jude, before I ask Tom a, a similar question, you think that you know Biden came out on top, if just about on that debate. Will that make any difference to the actual election result? We're hearing that well, I think it, millions of people have already voted. Will that debate and, and Joe Biden's win in your eyes make any difference? Well, I certainly, I mean, that's the very crucial point is that due to the COVID-19 pandemic, so there's been such a an early amount of um, postal voting, uh, an early amount of um, early voting as well. So I think this debate probably largely won't make too much of a difference. Um, when we look to election day and people who vote on election day, typically Republicans and Donald Trump's base will be those who will vote on election day, whereas Democrats and people who lean towards Joe Biden would have already voted. So, I mean, there was no moment from the debate you say that you could easily say or pinpoint that changed the race in the direction of Donald Trump. So I think it will maintain um, the polling that has been consistent for the last number of months, which is yeah. Joe Biden at a considerable yeah. advantage. Uh, Tom, uh, you watched the debate as well. Uh, same kind mm -hmm. of question. Did you think that there was a winner who came out of that? Well, I agree with you to some extent. I think uh, Donald Trump clearly reflected on the past, uh, past debate and thought perhaps we needed a new approach. Um, I disagree to him with an, uh, to another extent in the sense that I think Trump definitely beat Biden. I don't know if it's enough to 
surpass the lead that Biden has already. I mean, you compare this election to the last election. I mean, Clinton, though, it was against Clinton, there was 13% of likely voters were undecided. It's now only 8% in this election. So I don't understand. I don't know if the gains made by Trump in that debate is going to be enough to turn the tide. I don't know if there's that many voters he can win back. But I definitely think he won the debate. And I think his air of, pre- his air of being more presidential certainly made an impact. Well, I mean, Tom, one of the things that, that, that Biden really jumped upon Joe Biden was an oil, a remark about the oil industry. He said, would you close down the oil industry, said Trump, and Biden said, I would transition away from the oil industry, yes. We know that the oil industry is quite significant in some of these key swing states. Donald Trump seemed to think that that was very significant and could be used by him and his campaign to try to turn the tide on this election. Do you think that is as significant as the Trump campaign seems to suggest? Uh, no, I don't think it is. The The state that produces the most oil is Texas. Um, it produces four times the amount of oil than the next state, which is North Dakota. I think he already had Texas in the bag, but I think uh, some well-targeted ads had certainly locked down Texas, but I think he already had it in the bag. So I don't think it's going to be as influential in states which really matter, like Pennsylvania um, and obviously Wisconsin and Michigan. I don't think it's going to help him in that respect. Uh, Jude, uh, you know, on, on polling day, Joe Biden needs everybody he can to turn out to vote for him. Didn't happen for Clinton in 2016. That remark about the oil industry, do you think, do you think that that is at risk of, of losing some kind of moderate Republicans who would have been tempted to vote for Joe Biden, but maybe their state depends a lot on jobs in the oil industry? Well, I think that's a fair question, but I think the Biden campaign clarified that remark after the debate that um, he actually meant that he means to phase out government subsidies for oil industries, which I think when we're faced with the current challenges of climate change is a is a policy that um, fair-minded and fair-minded and Americans would accept. And in terms of Clinton and, and uh, Joe Biden, we compare their two candidacies. I think, you know, Joe Biden is a fundamentally more popular candidate than Hillary Clinton. Um, there was a huge amount of uh, anxiety over Hillary Clinton even moderates, and that reflected, if you look at who voted, women actually voted for Donald Trump in 2016, then for Hillary Clinton, a lot of other demographics as well. But I think in Joe Biden, there's a lot more friendliness towards his candidacy. Um, And even if you look at the early voting figures, I mean, I saw a figure today in Texas that their early voting, 80% has been reached of the amount of people in 2016 who voted in Texas, 80% of those have voted already, and there's more than a week to go until election day. You know, we've seen millions, I think 26 million Americans have already voted through early voting or postal voting. Um, There's a huge amount of emphasis on young voters, on infrequent voters, on uh, voter registrations. And even while, and now while that may present a number of challenges in Pennsylvania, for example, they're not allowed to start counting the votes until until election day, while in other states, postal votes um, are allowed to be accepted until November 3rd, but yeah. will, will have to be counted after that. So I think there is a huge amount of ex- um, voter enthusiasm in this election, and I think turnout could reach um, some of the highest levels in the last 100 years. Jude, part of the reason why Joe Biden is a more popular figure than um, a Hillary Clinton was is he's been around for an awful long time. He was one of the, the, the nation's youngest ever senators. Was he in the Senate for 
40 plus years. Then he was a vice mm -hmm. president for eight years. Donald Trump on the debates uh, on uh, Thursday night, Friday morning, really tried to hammer home that question. If Joe Biden has been in office and in power for so long, why has nothing changed? Do you think that that is a yeah. successful argument that the Trump campaign is leveling against Biden? He's been around for a long time. And a lot of the stuff that he's now saying he wants to do, he probably could have had an influence on in the past. Mm. Well, I think if we compare this election to 2016, in 2016, people voted for change. Um, people voted for a candidate who would shake up the system um, and uh, someone who is new to Washington. Um, and I think that was what was reflected in 2016. A lot of the same voters who voted for Barack Obama in 2008, 2012 voted for Donald Trump because they wanted that change. But I think this election is fundamentally different. I think there's been a restoration of the desire for normalcy. Um, I think there's been a restoration for some form of control for someone who knows what they're doing. And I think there's certain there's a very certain degree of Trump fatigue um, in setting in, not only in the US, but around the world, that people are getting tired of the lack of responsibility, the lack of facts. Um, I mean, even today, the White House Chief of Staff said that the administration weren't taking credit, weren't taking responsibility any longer mm -hmm. for the coronavirus pandemic, that they were going to let the medicine take care of it. Uh, Tom, so I think that Tom uh, Jude mentions there a Trump fatigue. Uh, is that a fatigue that you're feeling or do you think that actually, you know, uh, people are quite happy to see another four years of Trump? Absolutely. It feels like every good decision he makes, whether it's on foreign policy or economic policy, it's met with 10 decisions that are absolutely awful regarding his Twitter account, his language. And after four years, it's utterly fatiguing, as Jude points out. So I can understand why traditional Republicans will just vote out of habit and lean Trump voters. And, and yet, Tom, if yeah, and yet, uh, Tom, if you were in the states, you would be uh, out on polling day for Donald Trump. I would, yes, begrudgingly, but I feel like I'd have to. I mean, the way that the Democrats treated the the summer disturbances in uh, places like you know Kenosha, I think is absolutely despicable. You know, giving sucker to some of the most violent riots America has seen for decades. I, I feel like I would have to vote for Trump just for a law and order figure. But hold on, hold on, Tom. You say that you want to vote for Trump for law and order, but he has been president for the entirety of the summer. All of these riots that you seem to have a problem with, he's been in charge at the time and he has failed to impose law and order. Absolutely. And if we think of, uh, well, I disagree in the sense that he failed to impose it. It was because of the, the mayors and the governors of those specific states. You think but that's not going to change, they, Tom, is they, it? If there's a new, they denied, if there's another Trump presidency. Trump offered offered support to Seattle, the mayor of Seattle, and they refused it. Um, there's only so much you can do. And if you've got a president who's giving absolute support and sucker to some of these groups, whether it's on transgender debates or any other debates that basically is, you know, filling the culture wars, then we're going to get to a very different America in four years' time. But hold on, Tom, in some ways, I mean, hold on. Well, I mean, you say that Biden has given sucker to certain groups. Is it not the case that Donald Trump has given well, sucker to cer certain groups, including, um, you know, extreme right at sometimes white nationalist groups? He's given sucker to them as well. He has, he has, well, not necessarily suck. He hasn't denounced them as well as he should have. But the thing is, I think the vast majority of Americans would agree that white nationalism is obviously wrong. But a growing support for, you know, capitalized BLM and Antifa and the suppression of free speech, it's becoming more popular. So I think it needs to be understood that that needs to be opposed far more, far more forcefully. Well, Jude, I, I, put, I, I, I ask you then, do you think in any way that, that, that Jude has a point, uh, that Tom has a point when he thinks that some moderate Republicans might be put off uh, voting for Biden because of those kind of disturbances, riots that we saw during the summer uh, in response to the death of George Floyd. 
Yeah, well, I think there's been a lot of um, talk amongst the more liberal side of the Democratic Party in terms of defunding the police and those kind of things. And I think, to Joe Biden's credit, he's never, you know, he's, he said he's against defunding the police. But, you know, I think Donald Trump has inflamed a lot of the divisions over the last number of years, um, a lot of the racial divisions in particular. And, you know, there, clear, there clearly is a problem in the U.S. with law and order. There clearly is a problem with guns in the U.S. Um, guns are too easily to um they're, they're too easy to access um so this obviously leads to these kind of problems and you know i'd also like to say that i know a lot of irish americans who live in the u.s who vote for donald trump and they're very fine people um but they just voted for a change in 2016 and they saw donald trump as that person to deliver that change so did you say you mentioned, say Ar you are, mentioned irish americans there if biden is to get um uh, the presidency or trump maintains it what does that relationship look like between ireland and america what's at stake in this race well well i think it's a very important period for the relations between ireland and the us um and most notably the 11 million irish people who live in america are undocumented and i was pleased to see Joe Biden issued a statement last week that he said he would try and provide a path to citizenship um, for those 11 million Irish Irish people who are undocumented um, in the US. And another point with the Brexit negotiations and as we enter the final phase of the uh, transition period, um, I think Downing Street, and there was a report in the Financial Times that Downing Street are looking very nervously at this election because obviously Donald Trump is a supporter of isolationism um, and therefore a supporter of Brexit and himself and Boris Johnson are two peas out of the same pod. But whereas Joe Biden, I think, will be more supportive of the Irish cause, um, he's obviously an ally of the Friends of Ireland Congressional Caucus who have been very supportive. Um, yeah. Of the fact that Tom, there could Tom, be no trade deal, Tom, uh, if there is, yeah, uh, uh, if, the, if the Good Friday Agreement is compromised, yeah, Tom, you um, have been a supporter of Brexit in the past. Uh, what Jude calls isolationism. It looks like if Biden gets into the Oval Office, there won't be an odd lot of support for your Brexit project on the other side of the Atlantic. Are you fearful for that? Uh, no, actually, because I think there's as much opposition to it in the Trump administra in administration. In September, the envoy to Northern Ireland from the Trump administration, Mr Mulvaney, said that um, the success of EU-British ne negotiations with regards to a trade deal would be interwoven with the success of a UK-US free trade agreement. So I think whether Biden get elect gets elected or Trump's re-elected, I think we're going to have a, a big uphill battle getting a free trade agreement with America. So with regards to that, I don't think it really makes much of a difference. Guys, we're running out of time here, but I've got to ask you both for a few predictions. Uh, the elections, what did I say? Uh, fewer than 10 days away. Uh, Tom, first, what do you see happening? Which swing states do you see swinging and in which direction? And um, who do you think is going to come out on top? I think Trump's going to win. With this trajectory, I think Trump's going to win, just not as large as he did four years ago. I think he's going to win Michigan, he's going to lose Pennsylvania, and he might be in with a chance of Wisconsin if they manage to uh, nail home the messages of Trump uh, with Biden and uh, manage a smear campaign against him like they did against Clinton. I think Trump will win. Okay, uh, smear campaign. Not, is that a campaign to be proud of, Tom? Not at all. I don't really like Trump or his campaigning, but I'd vote for him over Biden. Okay. <laughs> uh, Jude's prediction for Election Day? Well, I suppose we must remember that the magic number is 270 electoral votes. And when you look at the swing states, Trump's uh, path to victory is becoming more narrow. But he does have a tendency to um, to go against the, the, the trends of the pollsters. So I'd say that uh, Biden will win. But I think it's going to be closer than I think. I think Trump will hold on to Florida, Ohio and Georgia. 
whereas Biden will win Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. So if I could put a number on it, I'd say about 290 to 240 electoral votes to Joe Biden. Well, we won't hold you as a hostage to fortune, but we will definitely have you back on again, guys, to talk about the results when they do eventually come in. Thank you both. Mm. Uh, Jude Perry, former head of Young Fianna Gale at QUB, and you, Tom, Tom Foley, uh, PPE student at QUB. Uh, still to come on the show, uh, join our tour of the UK and Ireland to find out about the politics behind the pandemic from folks on the ground, how are the creative industries adapting to this second wave as hospitality is forced to close. We'll be taking a look at what's trending, finding out about our brand new Scoop show all about sports. Uh, that's all still to come. This is The Scoop on Sunday. The time is five minutes to eight. Okay, enough of that. Now, for a segment that has become a hit on our show, a thought for the week from Dr. Keith Breen. This is... Hello, folks. Um, this is Keith Breen here again. Um, I hope you're doing well despite all the restrictions in place and that your friends and loved ones are equally fine. Um, I'm delighted to be here for a further week uh, uh, to share with you my main thought for the week. Um, well, actually, I've had three recurring thoughts of the week, and I think I'm going to share all three. Why be parsimonious when, when one can be generous? So my first relates to the deeply worrying news that the bottlenose dolphin Fungi, who has swum and played with humans in the waters around Dingil and Kerry for the last 35 years, has been missing for three days. Shocking as revealed by RT and the BBC in various reports. I think you will share my deep concern for Fungi and pray that he returns. And if you're listening, Fungi, please do return home. We're bereft without you. My second thought, and this is the real thought that I want to get across, relates to a topic I've been teaching recently uh, to my Perspectives on Politics students. And that's the topic of democracy and the problem of the tyranny of the majority. I think it's an important topic um, it's important because tyranny of this type is, is very significant and tyranny of this type occurs where a majority group in a democracy uses its democratic power to push through policies that undermine or revoke the rights of minority groups, whether these minority groups be class, ethnic, religious or other uh, groups or national minority groups. And so the, the tyranny of the majority is really important because for a number of reasons, it was this tyranny, it was tyranny of this type that the civil rights movement in the 1960s USA sought to counter, sought to counter majoritarian white supremacy and to protect the, the rights of, of minority groups, in particular African-Americans. And that's still ongoing in the United States. It's also a tyranny of, of that type tyranny of the majority, that the Good Friday Agreement, with its power-sharing structures, sought to counter. And this is really important, because a healthy democracy is one where no one part of the people is in a position to dominate and deny the rights of other parts of the people. So I think it's, I think it's really appropriate that I do have a class on the tyranny of the majority. Um, and I think, as Democrats, it's really important that we're aware of the danger of the tyranny of the majority. But I think the story that I'm telling my students is very much incomplete and that I need a further class. And I think I'm, I'm, I will be providing that class next year. So this is so because there isn't just one tyranny that threatens democracy 
Uh, there isn't just one type of tyranny that threatens democracy. There are, in fact, several. And one of the most enduring and important is, in fact, not the tyranny of the majority, but the tyranny of the minority. Now, what do I mean here? And where am I getting this from? Isn't democracy supposed to be about the rule of the people? Okay? And isn't aristocracy and oligarchy, aren't they about the rule of the minority in the sense of either the best in aristocracy or the few in oligarchy, the wealthy in oligarchy? Well, I still think that we can see the tyranny of the, of the minority in democracy in various ways. And it's a real problem for our democracy. First, consider the backgrounds of many of our representatives, in particular in the UK cabinet and in the Westminster Parliament. Many of these people, especially in the, in the cabinet, come from the same class, with the same life experiences and the same worldviews. Life experiences and worldviews that do not, rep do not represent that of the majority of UK citizens. And this is decisive. They hold political power. Second, consider our economy. This is currently constituted is dominated by a corporate and financial class that is increasingly sharply and radically distinguished from the average person in terms, firstly, of wealth, secondly, of equality of opportunity, thirdly, in terms of their interests, and fourthly, in terms of life experiences. And yet they hold economic power. So, these are two minorities. How, do we really live in a democracy? We think we we seem we claim that we are, that we do live in a democracy. But if political power and economic power rest in the hands of minorities and have done so for decades, and look like they 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 will so for foreseeable future, if political power and economic power rest in the hands of the few, is our democracy really a democracy at all, or is it really an oligarchy, a system run by the few in the interest oftentimes only of the few? Anyway, that's been troubling me of late, that our democracy is really but a sham in key regards. My third thought, which I share today, and this is a bit random, uh, relates to the difference between prose and poetry. My daughter Lily asked that question this week. What's the difference between prose and poetry? Um, <clears throat> I tried my hand at a few answers, but she wasn't persuaded by them. So I looked at a few sources on the internet and a few books that I had, and I came across this wonderful story told about Brendan Bean, the Dublin writer and drinker, which I think very much helps clarify the difference. And let me just tell you that story. So, and I, I'm taking this from a book, and I'll just read from the book. The writer, that's Bean, was once invited to Oxford to take part in a debate between, about the difference between prose and poetry. His opponent spoke for almost two hours. Bean rose to his feet and promised to be brief. He recited an old Dublin rhyme. And I'll, here's, a, here, here's how it goes. There was a young fellow named Rollox who worked for Ferrier Pollux. As he walked on the strand with a girl by the hand, the water came up to his ankles. That, declared Bean, is prose. But if the tide had been in, it would have been poetry. Good old Bean. I think that really captures it. That said, I won't be sharing that anecdote with my daughter. She's only nine. That's it, folks. Hope you can tune in next week. Until then, stay lucky. Did somebody say Keith Brain? 
That was our thought for the week from Dr. Keith Breen. Thank you very much to him for that. Okay, now across the UK and Ireland, COVID cases have been on the rise. Every nation has been dealing with this second wave differently, and every national response has caused serious political ramifications. We've got folks on the ground tonight in Scotland, England, Wales, the Republic of Ireland, and here in Northern Ireland to look at the politics behind the pandemic. So let's start at home. I'm joined now by Michael Jardine, the former head of news at Queen's Radio. Michael, can you hear us? I can hear you loud and clear Thomas, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Michael, why don't you start off by giving us a rough idea of how bad this second wave is in Northern Ireland? So uh, I guess where we where we best to start is just where uh, our, our peak arrived. And that was about two weeks ago where we actually... Um, in terms of positive cases exceeded the the peak in our in our first wave um as we sort of moved through uh this second wave we've actually seen um as a result of sort of the executive's uh actions and i think we'll come on to talk about that later we've actually seen uh positive cases actually decline so darian sarah for a long time had actually led the way uh from the uk perspective in terms of the amount of positive cases now we, uh, with today's um, with today's statistics released from the uh, Department of Health, uh, the COVID rate in Darien Strabane is actually at its lowest since October 5th. So you're looking at around an average of 360 cases per 100,000 in Northern Ireland. Now today, unfortunately, um, we had our highest new death uh, new death count uh, in, in a considerable time with over eight people um, losing their life to COVID at the moment. Uh, I guess we're really pushed now, and what's really changed now is our bed occupancy in Northern Ireland. We've, we've got over 93% of, of beds in ICU occupied. So that really relieves 15 beds out of, out of a possible uh, over 110 beds in ICU currently um, available. So that's, we're, that's pretty scary, uh, Michael. Um, give us an idea what yeah. then the executive has done. I mean, what does this circuit break or lockdown yeah. actually mean? Yeah, so I mean, Northern Ireland was the first uh, of the devolved regions to really um, come out and, uh, and take real practical, strong steps towards um, moving into kind of a second lockdown. Uh, but this phrase circuit breaker is one that's been thrown around the media a while. And I guess it, it differs from um, from devolved region to devolved region. Really, in a sense, it's, a, it's kind of best described as a short, sharp period of, of tightened restrictions. Uh, in order to kind of curb the spread. So th- this will usually last around two weeks. In Northern Ireland, it's actually down for four weeks. Um, so we kind of got popularity. Uh, the concept was kind of popularised where uh, in London, where the Prime Minister and uh, members of the House of Commons had discussed it as a potential way of halting rapid growth of infections. Again, it's been used in New Zealand and Singapore. So uh, it's a great success now that we see New Zealand transitioning out of uh, of a lock of a longer term and, and, and michael give us an idea of the politics behind this has there been disagreement between the executive parties disagreement within specific parties yeah i, I, I mean in speaking to people within the political parties and there's always you've got to remember there's always disagreement within parties internally um and that's just i think healthy for a political discourse within each of these parties um but i think what's different now is that it's bubbling over and becoming much more public um I, when when we went into lockdown part of the lockdown uh, part of the uh the lockdown and, uh, and circuit breaker uh rules and limits uh put in 
were actually to extend the uh, the half term holidays, um, that was a that caused a big rift b- uh, between the executive parties, specifically the DUP and Sinn Fein. Um, the Education Minister Peter Weir, member of the DUP, uh, advocated strongly that um, that schools and uh, universities, but specifically schools, shouldn't uh, extend their their closing period. Now, there's a lot of different reasons for that. Um, I I think for for him personally, he didn't want to see students losing more time, more contact time with teachers. Um, but I think the I think there was a lot of internal discussion within the executive leading up to the period where where they made the decision to bring Northern Ireland into. And staying with the DUP, there, Michael uh, Edwin Poots has made a bit of a splash. What did he have to say mm-hmm. this week? Yeah, so I mean, I think we all hoped with the New Deal and your approach. Uh, in in January, that we kind of moved away from the old style of politics, um, uh, but unfortunately, the the agriculture minister Evan Puts uh, made a number of comments, um, and he, again, so he he made he made a number of comments around uh, in rela- in relation to what types of areas have been greater sort of harsher hit by COVID, uh, you know, pointing out that areas of Catholic or nationalist domination in the area uh, outweigh, uh, have cases that outweigh uh, Unionist and uh, Protestant And, and that's, what he, that's so what he said, Michael. Is there any evidence I think to support that? Uh, yes and no. I mean, your characterization of of Catholic nationalist areas, I think, is very a very divisive uh, uh, phrase. I think when you actually break it down and look at areas of uh, dense population and areas of uh, are more socially de- deprived areas. I think you actually find the patterns. Uh, the patterns become more clearly aligned along those those areas as opposed to religious divides. But again, uh, and he 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 issued a kind of half apology uh, towards the end of, of last week. Again, not saying that he apologised for the words, but saying that they were they were taken and misconstrued by the media, uh, and that he you know comfortingly has Catholic friends. And wishes his Catholic friends, you know, he, he wishes them all the best. But he uh, he didn't mean anything offensively by it. But I mean, when he uh, this is you're not talking about a junior a junior minister, you know, you're talking about a very senior member of the party. And I think you, without being cynical, I think you have to realise that there has been a long-standing understanding within within the politics of Northern Ireland that Edmund puts his ambitions beyond simply agriculture minister. I think he saw himself as a a strong member of the Paisley wing. Um, the the Ian Paisley senior wing of the party before uh, before it was uh, before Peter Robinson took over as first minister. And I think uh, for a long time he's been angling for a way in which he can kind of make a stand, a public stand, and an internal stand within the party to show that he really has the leadership potentials. Uh, Michael, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there um, uh, with that that thought to leave us with. uh, That was Michael Jardine, former head of news at Queen's Radio. Uh, Let's jump across to England now and in Manchester, a political battle breaking out again between Mayor Andy Burnham and the government over support for businesses as Manchester entered an even more strict lockdown this week. Here's what Andy Burnham had to say on Tuesday of this week. I mean, it's, it's brutal to be honest, isn't it? What, this isn't a way, this is no way to run the country in a national crisis. It isn't. This is not right. They should not be doing this. 
Telling us all about this row now is uh, Nicole Wotton Kane, former deputy editor of the Mancunian Manchester University newspaper. I spoke to her just before the show. Here is what she had to say. Hi there, Nicole. Thank you very much for talking to us. Why don't we start England in general, and then we'll get to Manchester in a minute. Can you give us an idea of you know how bad this second wave is looking like in England as a whole? Yeah, sure. And um, so. That's kind of a difficult question to answer simply because I think it really is quite a regional difference here. Um, so I'm from Bristol um, and where my parents are, you know, they're in tier one. Things, cases are going up everywhere and that's certainly serious. Um, but they're still allowed people in their house. They're still allowed to go to restaurants with people. Um, and cases are certainly going at a much slower rate there. Um, whereas then I'm in Manchester, which obviously has been the place subject to a lot of national attention over the last couple of weeks. Um, and cases really are growing here massively and have been for quite a long time. Um, we were placed in essentially tier two at the end of July. Um, and things do feel quite serious here, really. Um, even just on a personal note, I have friends that have tested positive I have quite a few friends that have been contact traced so you know you really have the the feeling that it's around you this tier system you just mentioned there uh, Nicole it's different in, across all different parts of the UK could you give us an idea of what the tier system is in England so we can compare it to to Scotland to Wales and to Northern Ireland yeah sure so I'll try and get it right because you know it's quite confusing and I mean I'm obviously I'm a journalist um, it's my job to know the news and I still sometimes make mistakes on the rules here I think it is confusing um, but my understanding is tier one um, so the rule of six applies everywhere um, you're not allowed to meet in groups of larger than six people um, anywhere but in tier one you are allowed to mix households indoors um, so whether that's in your private home or in a restaurant, um, et cetera, yeah. um, that's the main difference. Um, then in tier two, um, you move up to only being allowed to mix with other households outdoors. Um, so pub gardens are fine, outside cafes is fine, but no inside pubs and no inside homes. Um, and then tier three, the big difference is no pubs unless they serve substantial meals there's been a lot of debate over what counts as a substantial meal um, and you see a lot of bars and pubs starting to serve food that haven't really ever served food before so they can stay open um, but yeah no household mixing unless you are in a public space um, like a park mm -hmm. um, you, or a beach but but in, but in Manchester then so under tier three Nicole you can still go to a bar and get some food and you can still get a drink is that the case Yes, you can, um, but, but it needs most to be a substantial having, meal. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. So you have to you have to um, order a substantial meal, and then usually there's like a limit of how many drinks you're allowed with each um, meal. So maybe it's two drinks if you order a pizza, say. Um, but I think what some people are finding, I have friends that work in hospitality, and they're just saying, well, there's just so much food waste because people want to drink, but they can only drink if they keep ordering food. So we're just throwing away mountains of food. Uh -huh. And Nicole, as much as, I mean, for a lot of people listening, drinking will be the big thing. What about the likes of schools? Mm -hmm. What about offices under tier three in Manchester? Uh, you know, how are they all working at the moment? Yeah, sure. So schools, schools are open. Um, and I think that's something that the government really intends to keep going um, across England, no matter what tier you're in. 
um, offices, it's not recommended that you go into an office. Um, so I'm working from home. Um, most people I know are working from home unless, of course, they have a job where you really can't. Absolutely. Okay. What about the Roy this week in Manchester, um, Nicole? Can you give us a rundown of, you know, it was Boris versus Andy Burnham, the Labour Party Manchester mayor. What was that political battle all about? Yeah, sure. So Andy Burnham was really arguing, along with other Greater Manchester uh, leaders, um, that the support that the government were offering um, to go into tier three was just not substantial enough. Um, Manchester has been, like I said, in some form of tier two um, since the end of July. Um, And so essentially what he was saying was, well, this money isn't enough. It won't see us through the winter because we're already suffering so much because of the measures that we've already had since the end of July um, and that we didn't get any extra support at that time for it. And so the row really played out that I think what he really estimated he wanted was around 90 million, but he was prepared to go down to 65 million. Um, And the government, this was for business support, not for uh, track and trace. Um, And the government didn't want to meet him at 65 and offered 60. Um, And so the discussions after days and days of negotiations ended with no agreement. And actually, it was very unclear about whether that 60 million was still on the table. So it was the sort of um, the basic, basic 20 million um, that was for um, things like track and trace that was promised and sort of quite um, very um, standard, I suppose. And then the the 60 million was for business support, really. Um, sure. Uh, Nicole, how have, how have the people of Manchester then, folks that you spoke to, how have they you know reacted to this battle? Have they largely been on Andy Burnham's side? Have they been sympathetic with the government? Where are most people sitting on this? I think, from my impressions, the mood in Manchester is very supportive of Andy Burnham. Um, you'll obviously either get, you'll get people on either side, no matter what. Um, but even reporters that were there at his um, speech earlier in the week um, spoke to su- supporters or people who were there to support Andy Burnham, who were not normally Labour voters, but felt that he was really standing up for the North. I think the real mood here is is one of anger, to be honest, that the North has been quite ignored. They feel very ignored in this and particularly older people um, will remember times in the past, you know, they, they feel that this could be the 80s all over again and see that that devastation in the north. And so they're really, really angry. And I think a lot of people feel very supportive of Andy Burnham. And how, how does this fit in, Nicole, with the wider political battle? We've talked a lot, you know, off the back of the last election, the Tories did very well in some northern seats that used to be Labour heartlands. Do the Tories, does Boris Johnson have much to lose in Manchester? Did they win many seats there? Will this make a difference? I think it certainly will make a difference. Um, so the Tories, Manchester is a very, as a city, very Labour, um, as a council as well, very, very Labour. Um, but you do have Bolton as a, as a Tory-led council um, in Greater Manchester. Um, and they did pick up several seats here. Um, in this in this Labour heartland last election, last Christmas. So they certainly do have political ground to lose here in Manchester. And it's really interesting 
um, Helen Pidd, who's the North of England editor of The Guardian, tweeted earlier the week in the week saying that she really had the sense that this would be a moment that would stick in voters' minds, much like uh, Lib Dems and tuition fees. That's what she compared it to. Um, and, you know, obviously only time will tell, but I can certainly feel that mood as well. Okay, uh, Nicole, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for talking to us. Um, it's really appreciated. Not at all. Thanks for having me on. Thank you very much to Nicole Wooten-Kane, Deputy Editor of the Mancunian Manchester University newspaper, giving us an update from the ground in England. Uh, let's jump northwards now to Scotland. I'm joined live from Edinburgh by Felix uh, Rakao, Head of News at Fresh Air Edinburgh University radio station. Uh, Felix, can you hear us? I can indeed. Hello. Thank you very much for joining us. Felix, why don't we start by uh, outlining the tier system in Scotland? It's caused a little bit of confusion. Yeah, it's it's very strange. It's basically a, a remix, an edited version of Boris's tier system, but they've added an extra an extra layer in just to make things nice and confusing. Um, also important to note, I think that it only actually comes into effect on the 2nd of November, which is when our current restrictions are due to end. Um, so yeah, five tiers, which are weirdly numbered from zero to four. So <laughs> tier zero is the closest that um, Nicola Sturgeon thinks we can get to normal life. Um, so I think that's close to sort of what we saw in late July and early August. So that's eight people from three households allowed to meet inside and 15 people from five households allowed to meet outside that's obviously with social distancing um, and then we jump up quite considerably actually to tier one which is sort of a mid-level danger um, so that's six people from two households able to meet either indoors or outdoors then we move to tier two which is considered quite a high level of risk and this is similar to the kinds of restrictions that people living in areas outside of the central belt are experiencing so this means that there's no meeting anyone from another household indoors and pubs are only allowed to sell alcohol with a meal. Um, then we move up to tier three, which is very similar to what people like me in the central belt are living under at the moment. So this means that alcohol sales are completely prohibited and then other hospitality settings are only able to operate under very restricted conditions. So at the moment, that's cafes without a license being allowed to open, I think from 10 a.m. till 6, 6 p.m. or 6 a.m. till 6 p.m. And then finally, tier four is the most extreme tier. This is basically a full lockdown. So no non-essential shops, not allowed to open, um, hospitality also closed. But I think important to note, because this is different to the lockdown that we had earlier in the year, schools would remain open and you'd still be allowed to meet outside in up to six, I think, again, obviously, with, with social distancing. So yeah, that's the, the four levels. Is there much support Five for these new like. measures, uh, Felix, or has patients started to weigh in? I mean, are people complying or is there quite a wee bit of rule breaking going on? Yeah, I think it's the same as everywhere. Patience is wearing thin, I think, amongst everyone, particularly students. And that's, in my opinion, and in the opinion of lots of people I've spoken to who aren't just students, that's completely understandable. Most people um, are breaking the rules, but they're doing so sensibly, if that makes sense. So I don't think there are many huge house parties going on, but I think people are maybe going around to their friends' houses in ones or twos for a drink or for a cup of tea and obviously that's detrimental to the public health effort but yes I, I do think on the whole people are being sensible and I think with that point as well it's important to remember that low level rule breaking is definitely something which is not confined to students um, potentially first year is breaking the rules a little bit more I've heard some stories of, of big parties which obviously have had to be broken up um, but yeah I think on the whole if there is rule breaking it's sort of low level 
and, and across the board in terms of the population. Um, Felix, yeah. throughout the pandemic, you know, Nicola Sturgeon's support levels have remained very high from polling and anecdotal evidence. And that's kind of despite the fact that quite often she has been announcing very similar measures to Boris. Well, I mean, why do you think there's a discrepancy between how people view Nicola Sturgeon and Boris Johnson in Scotland? Yeah, from my own point of view, I think there is a certain level of compassion, which unfortunately you just don't get from from Boris Johnson. For example, last week, I don't know if you saw, but Nicola, at the start of one of her addresses, which I think, if I'm I'm correct, she's still doing every day, another thing that Boris isn't doing, she made an address to like the children of Scotland about Santa still being able to to operate. She said he was a key worker. And I just think that was an example of, of this compassion, which she seems to have been showing throughout the pandemic. I think Boris is also the school of thought where if you apologise for something, it makes you sort of culpable for it. Whereas Nicola Sturgeon has consistently apologised. She apologised to students the other day. Um, Without sort of taking the blame, she's just sorry for the situation, if that makes sense. And I think that's garnered quite a lot of sympathy. And of course, Santa is both overweight and over 75. So in the very vulnerable <laughs> category from, 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 from COVID, I did have to think of that joke. Um, um, Felix, I mean, COVID has definitely changed the debate around Scottish independence. Polling is suggesting a fairly consistent majority now for independence. The last poll I saw, 58% was Ipsos Mori. Uh, what is it about this pandemic that that has really, I mean, it's flipped the polling in some cases for a consistent majority in favour of Scotland leaving the UK? Why is that? Yeah, I'm, I'm by no means, obviously, by the sound of my voice, I'm English. I'm by no means an expert on, on Scottish independence. But I think, again, it's that honesty that, that really shines through, which you just don't get from central government, at least at the moment. And I think that Almost beyond the pandemic, I think the Scots sort of now have a vision of what it could be like, if that makes sense. So these really influential decisions about day-to-day life, you know, the restrictions decisions, for example, they're being made on a devolved basis and it is to a certain extent working. The, the flip side of that, I suppose, Felix, is that, you know, Rishi Sunak is one of very few Tories with any support in Scotland. In some ways, the reason that Nicola Sturgeon has been able to offer the kind of government intervention that she has is because there's a lot of Treasury money backing every move that she makes. That's furlough scheme, that's support for businesses uh, across the board. Is that Treasury money, you know, the the, the, the strength of, of, of the United Kingdom fiscally, is that having any effect in promoting unionism in Scotland? Well, I think it's interesting you say that. I think Scotland's always done quite well in terms of the Barnet formula, in terms of funding. Um, important to know, I think, as well, they also spend quite a lot more. But actually, in the past couple of days, I was I was reading this morning, Nicola Sturgeon's blasted Rishi Sunak. I think he made some comment um, when announcing the new support system that funding in England would be as extensive and would sort of last as, as long as it was needed. Um, similar sort of thing to what he did with the furlough scheme. And obviously... Nicola Sturgeon's point is that as the First Minister of Scotland and as all the other devolved leaders would be expected to do as well, she's expected to make that commitment as well, but she hasn't been given any assurances of any extra money. So, And also, again, she doesn't have the facility to borrow any money. Um, so I think actually, while things like the furlough scheme early on probably did have an effect on, on unionism, a positive effect, there's almost more of a rift developing now between centralised sources of funding. I think now the sort of magic money tree if you will i hate that expression has has dried up a bit I, i've certainly noticed that i think there is there is more of a rift 
And we know from the Brexit debate and uh, referendum, of course, that people don't always vote in the way that their pocket might suggest they should. Uh, Felix, thank you very much for yes. joining us. We're going to have to leave it there. Uh, that was thank Felix Rakao, head of news at Fresh Air, Edinburgh University radio station. Now let's take a trip to Wales. Images have gone viral of uh, supermarkets blocking off non-essential items after Wales announced a firebreaker lockdown. I spoke to Morgan Perry political editor of Guy Reith, Cardiff University newspaper just before the show. Here is what he had to say. Hi there, Morgan. Thank you for talking to us. Uh, can you give us an idea of how quickly cases are rising in Wales at the moment? So really, the last couple of weeks have been, we've seen a big increase in the number of cases here at the moment. I had a look this morning and in the last seven days, the areas in Wales that have the highest rates of infection have as many cases as 311 cases per 100,000 people. Now, if you compare that to where cases were in the middle of April, the highest incidence uh, was around 110 cases per 100,000 people. Now, of course, we've increased testing capacity in Wales, but still, it's clear from the number of deaths and the number of cases, when you compare that particularly to the middle of the summer, that cases are rising pretty quickly here. Really, that's centred around the university towns and cities. Uh, I know the ward here in Cardiff, which has the highest number of cases, also happens to be the one that has the four large halls of residence for Cardiff University. But certainly, as I say, when you compare that to the beginning of the pandemic and the middle of the summer, we're beginning to see a, quite a steep rise in the number of cases. So the implication kind of in there, Morgan, is that, that universities and students have a large responsibility in terms of the increasing number of cases. Is that is that what you're kind of hearing? I think it's certainly certainly one of the reasons, and obviously, of course, prefix it with, I'm not an epidemiologist, but where the case data show, or what the case data shows us is that it's centred around those university cities and towns, Cardiff, Swansea, uh, Aberystwyth, which had to suspend uh, teaching, uh, in-person teaching not too long ago. Uh, so that's certainly where we're seeing sharp rises in the number of cases. And what steps have the government then taken Morgan? So, Thomas, at the moment, what we're finding ourselves in is what the Welsh Government has coined a firebreak lockdown. This essentially takes us back, in essence, to March. Non-essential retail is shut. You must not meet with anyone from outside of your household uh, and you must work from home where possible. Now, education, uh, including universities, are still uh, meeting in person. Uh, those secondary schools are only partially open. And the Welsh Government is hoping that this two-week period, which ends on November 9th, will be enough to bring down the cases uh, as we go into the winter and uh, prevent, as they say, the NHS in Wales from becoming uh, overwhelmed. And I suppose what is a little bit different, maybe Morgan, is uh, we've certainly seen over here images from Wales of supermarkets blocking mm. off non-essential items, uh, books and, and toys and things, blocking them off from shoppers. Those images have gone viral. What, what's that all about? Talk us through that particular aspect of the lockdown. Yeah, you're certainly right, and, and right about it going viral too, because it's done the same here. Now, as I said, as it stands, only essential retail is open in Wales, so that includes uh, supermarkets, 
It includes uh, banks, uh, things like clothing stores, bookstores, chocolate shops specifically are shut in Wales. And really, there are two key thoughts behind the decision to, to shut off certain areas of supermarkets. And number one, and perhaps most importantly, that's to ensure that people aren't making unnecessary trips to supermarkets. And two, uh, or sort of the original thinking behind it was that it would ensure that those businesses that are closed aren't unfairly disadvantaged. Uh, it was brought up uh, by the shadow business minister for the Welsh Conservatives uh, that it would be unfair for independent businesses in Wales to close while supermarkets selling the same items could remain open. So really there's two key thoughts there. It's about stopping people going to the shops when they don't need to and it's ensuring a, a fairer playing field, should we say, for those businesses that have been forced to shut. And there's been some talk, Morgan, that there could be a U-turn on that issue. I know Mark Drakeford was uh, 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 this was raised uh, this morning on Andrew Marr. Does it look like we could see a bit of reverse ferret here or is it likely to remain the policy that non-essential items cannot be bought? Well, Thomas, uh, never say never in the pandemic, as we're um, as we're beginning to learn. I know the um, the head of the Police Federation for Wales said that policing such rules is pretty much impossible, um, and it's easy to see why he thinks that. Vaughan Gething spoke to Andrew Marr this morning and said that the Welsh government would not be U-turning on the decision. Mark Drakeford, meanwhile, tweeted that they would review uh, the restrictions with shops to ensure that they're being implemented correctly. Uh, what we have seen is some supermarkets blocking off things like greeting cards, uh, which the Welsh Government have, cons uh, have uh, since said can still be sold. So clearly there's a miscommunication there between the government and supermarkets. And what what's the reaction been in the general public to all of this, Morgan? Is there a lot of compliance or is the patient starting to run out? I think what we've seen across the whole country, outside Wales as well, is that compliance with the rules as we go further on is diminishing and patience I think for a lot of people is running out in relation specifically to uh, supermarkets and those non-essential items actually a, a petition has been launched on the Senev website uh, and it's got so far 45,000 signatures it's one of the most signed petitions uh, in the petitions website history so it certainly seems like public mood would very much be against what the government is thinking. There's been some friction, Morgan, between the Welsh government uh, in, in Cardiff and the UK government in London. Uh, talk us through that. What's the relationship like between the devolved assembly and the central government? I think it's complicated, and that's partially because we've got two competing parties uh, in play, which is always going to, of course, make things difficult. In the Senate, we have a Welsh Labour, Welsh uh, Liberal Democrat coalition government, and at Westminster, of course, we have the Conservative government. I think really what the pandemic has shown us is that Mark Drakeford has been keen to exercise his devolved powers in areas like health and education. I think in many ways that's worked well um, but it has exposed some less than favourable attitudes of number 10 towards the devolved nations. You might recall week before last uh, there was a travel ban introduced from uh, high-risk areas in England to Wales and that came after Mark Drakeford composed a series of letters to Downing Street which went uh, unresponded to. And I think if you look earlier in the pandemic as well, perhaps the clearest example of this and, and those strained relations is a lack of meeting and a lack of coordination between the two. 
I think at one point, Boris Johnson went nearly two months uh, without speaking to the Welsh and Scottish governments. Uh, I can imagine the same would have been true for uh, the Northern Ireland Assembly as well. Uh-huh. It sounds a little bit like a dysfunctional relationship. I know in Wales, Morgan, you know, support for independence is low. Has COVID changed how Welsh people view their place in the UK in the same way maybe it has in Northern Ireland and Scotland? Chief Thomas, I think the, the latest polling data shows that support for an independent Wales is on the rise. Uh, I think the last poll had uh, support for Welsh independence at 25%, which is pretty much as high as it's ever been. I think, as we've already said, the pandemic is not only exposing those tensions between Westminster and Cardiff, but also perhaps demonstrates that Wales at least needs more powers in order to respond effectively to events like this. And maybe the fact that polling is high for independent shows that this is this is resonating with, with everyday voters. I think our next big test will come in May, which is the Senate elections, and uh, Plaid Cymru currently are predicted to win 15 seats. So whether or not there'll be an increase for the, the Wales National Party, we'll, we'll see. A final question I want to to ask you, Morgan, you've mentioned there Mark Drakeford um, is the First Minister in Wales, uh, Labour Party. It sometimes appears like the Welsh government in Wales and the national Labour government aren't always singing off the the same hymn sheet. What is your reading of what that relationship is like between Keir Starmer and Mark Drakeford? 100%. And actually something I'd, I'd thought about earlier when when preparing for this is is exactly that. And I don't think it's limited to Labour either. We see a huge uh, sort of dysfunctional relationship between the Welsh Conservatives and the National Apologies. We see a dysfunctional relationship between the Welsh Conservatives and the National Conservative Party. And I think in many ways it's the same for the Liberal Democrats as well. I think sometimes it's forgotten that there is a Labour government in Cardiff by the National Party. We often see uh, Labour criticising the Welsh Conservatives in Cardiff for decisions that the National Labour Party has pushed for. So you're right, I think sometimes it's very clear that they're not always reading from the same hymn sheet. Morgan, thank you very much for talking to us. It's really appreciated. Thank you. That was Morgan Perry, political editor of Guy Reith, Cardiff University newspaper there. Now, we've only got one stop left. Let's cross the Irish Sea and speak live to Odrin Johnson, a member of our news team in Dublin. Odrin, can you hear us? We can. Uh, thanks for having me on again, Thomas. Not a problem at all. Um, we spoke to you two weeks ago, Odrin, and you were telling us how the government had decided not to go all the way to a level five lockdown in the south. Uh, things have changed now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so since then, unfortunately, for both the nation and the government, cases continue to rise, which led to scrutiny from the Republic and the opposition parties. Uh, this then obviously again resulted in the government now following Neftis' fight to implement level five lockdown uh, once it was brought before them. And does that kind of come to bite the government back? I mean, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago that said that, you know, not, the government was taking a big risk here by turning down Neftis' advice for a full lockdown two weeks ago. Is it coming to bite the government now? Yeah, well, it certainly seems to play into the hands of the opposition parties for sure. Um, one of the things we've seen mostly has been uh, general annoyance over the government's poor handling of Neft's advice, because only two weeks ago, uh, and obviously opposition parties have been staunchly advocating for the reinstatement of the €350 Euro pandemic unemployment payment. 
And then most notably, the main argument from the opposition parties has been in favour of implementing protections for renters and mortgage payers currently out of work. But besides that, ultimately, all of them have been in favour of it. But obviously, the government uh, not choosing to take on board Neffet's advice previous has put them in a precarious position now, which really plays into the favour of the opposition parties. And in terms of the financial support that you've mentioned there, Odrin, you're now in a level five lockdown in the South. That's quite uh, severe. Is there the same kind of financial compensation from the government now as there was in the original lockdown back in March, or have things changed? So for a while, the pandemic unemployment payment had been at 350 at the beginning of lockdown, and it went down to 202 euros for people who weren't earning over that current amount um, per week. Um, the, the opposition parties lobbied for it, as I said earlier, and it has gone back up to 350 euro. But again, there's a lot of other problems that still haven't been dealt with that sh- that could have been dealt with over the interim period. What kind of problems are they, Odrin? Well, so again, as I mentioned before, the implementing of protection for renters and mortgage payers, it's obviously a big trouble, for a big thing for people at the moment, especially people running sole businesses, is that they're not going to be getting much income in outside of the pandemic unemployment payment. And that's obviously going to affect them if they're renting a home, if they're you know, taking out a mortgage for a house and whatnot. What about general popular support for the measures, Odrin? At the beginning of the pandemic, I think across UK and Ireland, people were really on board. It was a bit of a national spirit, national energy. Can the same be said now? Yeah, well, it's really interesting that you bring that up, actually, because there was a recent Ireland Thinks poll that came out and the only voters uh, against the second lockdown that vote for a named party are those in AIN2, which were then closely followed by Fianna Fáil, with 50% of their voters actually being against another lockdown, with only 40% being in favour and 10% uh, undecided. Uh, There is notably as well, though, all the parties that weren't named on the ballot, 87% of those voters do not want a second lockdown. So that's interesting. So the party whose uh, leader is the current uh, Taoiseach of Ireland, uh, uh, Micheál Martin, Fianna Fáil, 50% of their voters are against the lockdown that their own leader has taken them into. Yeah, and it should be added as well that also Fine Gael on top of that, who are, as again, also in government, have 40, uh, 48% of people in favour of the lockdown, but 41% against and 11 undecided. So based on that undecided, it could flip either way as well. The only party that has a strong foothold in uh, obtaining a second lockdown are the Green Party. And, uh, I mean, we've talked before, Odrin, about how um, COVID has changed the debate in Northern Ireland about a united Ireland. Uh, Sinn Féin has been saying right from the beginning they've been talking about things like an all-Ireland approach to COVID-19. Has COVID changed the debate for a united Ireland from a Republic of Ireland perspective? Is it on the back burner or has it kind of increased the urgency? I think it's certainly brought the topic back into the forefront again. Obviously, Sinn Féin have always been predominantly uh, arguing for it, but it has really gotten into the media attention as of recent because of the joint cooperation between both uh, both countries' parliaments. Um, on this sense as well, well, though, I think most parties are more arguing for mostly a common ground uh, approach to all-Ireland cooperation between the North and South to stop the spread of the virus. Odrin, we're going to have to leave it there, I'm afraid. We've got a really busy show uh, this evening, so thank you. That was Odrin Johnson there from our news team in Dublin. Wow, well, there you have it. Uh, across the UK and Ireland, some very different approach approaches to tackling this second wave. And all of them are far more political than the first time around. We will be revisiting this topic, so we'll be coming back to it. This is The Scoop on Sunday. The time is 19 minutes to nine. 
Now, with me in the studio is Matt Evans, uh, musician supreme. If you're into Northern Irish music, music you will have at some point uh, come across Matt Evans. Matt, thanks very much for being with us. Thanks very much for having me. Um, the creative industries have taken a real hit over the course of the last months. You are heavily embedded in that world. How much of your work from March onwards has just disappeared into the ether? Give us an idea of how much that landscape changed for you. I th I'd say in probably the, in less than a week, we had 100% of the work for the entirety of the year just completely cancelled. Um, when lockdown was eased a little bit, some more bookings trickled back in, some weddings that might have been postponed for the winter maybe. And again, within a month, all of that was gone. And um, for one of my main bands, which would be the main money earner, which we do functions and weddings and stuff, as a total, we're probably looking into the tens of thousands. We lost just for this year alone. Tens of thousands of pounds yeah, for, for one year. Yeah. You've had to adapt a lot of your work. Have you been successful in adapting or are there limits to how much you can really change um, how, how you work? So I think um, all industries are now working at home and as a musician, I'm lucky in that I can do some recording at home. Um, but being paid to do recording at home relies on people being able to pay you and the whole musical ecosystem just basically collapsed and not many people that have the money really to do these kind of projects. So the past six months or so has really been uh, about investing in the equipment and the skills to be able to work from home, hoping that maybe next year we might see some more money coming in and being able to, to capitalise on that. And I want, I want to talk about that investment. I want to talk about that money. Um, you probably will have had some of your hopes up coming towards the end of the summer into the autumn when things looked like they were maybe getting a little bit better. Now a whole host of new restrictions. We spent the last almost hour talking about the new restrictions. I mean, that reimposed on things like hospitality. Have you had to change your plans all over again? I'm not sure what plans we have right now, to be honest. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. Um, you know, the government are saying there's going to be four weeks of lockdown before they reconsider. I think most people are probably expecting that to keep going. Um, and even, you know, even if pubs do reopen, uh, who's to say if music's going to be allowed back in them? Mm -hmm. Matt, you, you, you made the call not a whole long period of time ago to, to go pro into mm -hmm. music. You were studying uh, chemistry. Biology. Biology, sorry. Yeah, nearly. And were very, very good at it. Um, do you have any regrets about uh, making that jump? No, still no, no regrets. Uh, even though the past six months might have been particularly good financially. Actually, we've had, I've done some of the best music over the past six months. I made good new relationships. What do say. you mean by that? Uh, oh, the, you know, the initial period of lockdown where it seemed the entire world was just sitting at home. Uh, suddenly you had all these musicians sitting at home with so much time in their hands and people were just up for it, up to do anything. So you had international level musicians willing to use their time to help, to help younger people, newer people, and some really good things were made over the, over the first three months. Now we're kind of a limbo period and people don't really know what they're doing. But um, certainly it was... Creatively and musically, it was a good time. Uh, you mentioned investment earlier on. You've been the recipient of some new money uh, that's come in from the Arts Council. What's that all about? Yes, yeah, so the Arts Council, a few months ago, launched a programme, um, big long name, and the Arts Council loves acronyms, but it's called the Individual Emergency Resilience Programme. Oh, wow. Which is really designed to uh, rescue musicians and um, in some cases just provide a replacement for basic living income. Um, so just last week they announced that over 1,000 individuals in Northern Ireland would get that and that represented a funding of um, £3.8 million and then there was another 250 odd 
uh, musicians that got half a million pounds funding. And, and, and what have you been able to do with that money? Is that, is that money going to keep in a roof over your head or is it about reinvesting in your work? Um, I suppose so it depends on each musician, yeah. but for yourself, where did that money go? Um, so for my application, uh, I, gave, I gave a part of it to investing in new gear to be able to work from home more effectively. And then the rest of it was, um, I kind of described it as buying my time. So being able to record for other people who might not necessarily have enough money to do that. And so that funding would pay my wage in a way. You know a lot of people in the music industry, Matt. Is that funding enough? I mean, has it helped everyone or is it, has, it been, has it been too limited in um, your view? This is, the, this is the first major funding that we've seen since lockdown. There's some emergency stuff right at the very start, but that kind of lasted very long. Um, so it's fantastic to see this and it's going to do a lot of people a lot of good. But um, there's a campaign group that have been campaigning for live event stuff and they're estimating that about 7,500 people in Northern Ireland work in the events industry. Uh, so if only 1,000 people have been uh, recipients of this program, then Basic Miles says that there's a lot of people who aren't getting it. And this funding's going to last till the end of the year, but once Christmas is over and once the new year comes around, we might be looking under our pockets again. And of course, you say, you've reminded me of it now. Christmas is the time when musicians are probably particularly busy. Uh, Christmas I mean, is the busiest time for us, yeah. It, would Christmas have been where, you know, you make a good amount of your year's income? Absolutely. And I think that I really worry a lot for venues, venues as well. Um, places like the Grand Opera House or regional theatres, I would say they paid a lot of their bills based on the back of the pantomimes that they do, Grand Opera House in particular. And I don't think any of those pantomimes are going ahead right now. Uh, and these buildings are in right in the middle of the cities. They have big rents, they have big staff, they have high maintenance costs. And once venues lose a little bit of cash flow and not, you know aren't able to fix lights, fix leaks, buildings start to fall in dis disrepair. And this is... Uh, that, that's going to be a huge thing for, for, for those venues in absolutely. particular. Um, uh, Matt, it's, it's a tricky question. For some people, the l losing all of your work losing an entire year's plan in a matter of weeks can be a really difficult experience. Mm -hmm. Did you find that you went through, uh, was, was that a difficult process watching it all disappear? Uh, everyone's situation is different. Um, and through work I've done over the past few years, I was lucky to be, lucky to be in a relatively, relatively stable position. So in my case, it definitely wasn't as stressful as other people. I knew people that from week to week or day to day weren't sure if they were going to be able to make their bills. And some people have had to move home to their parents, move out of the city, um, in some cases move country, and find alternative employment. And as soon as you start doing other jobs, that steals time from being able to focus on your music. Yeah, we've chatted over the last couple of weeks, Matt, about uh, uh, Rishi Sunak was uh, accused of saying that some musicians should um, retrain and move out of the industry. Then we had a bit of controversy about that, that ad with a ballet dancer to retrain in cyber. That was part of a much wider campaign. Taking the mood of all of those things, mm -hmm. do you think that the government, the country, values um, you as an artist in the creative industries enough? Or mm. do you kind of feel like you're being left behind? I think if you took your microphones onto the street and asked people if they appreciated the arts, they'd probably say they would. But uh, as soon as you ask people to start parting with their money to support artists, if that's funding a live stream or buying merchandise or things like that, then it becomes a lot harder. So I think uh, I think deep down, artists we'd like to see we'd like to see more support from the public. Absolutely, Matt. Thank you very much for, for coming on the show. You've picked the tune that we're going to play at the end of the show. What, what, what have you picked? This is a bit of Desert Island Discs <laughs> imitation for you. What have you picked? Uh, this is absolutely the track I would take to my Desert Island. It's called Malibu. It's by Maddie Burke. And uh, a whole load of musicians are on it. And it 
that group of musicians kind of represents who I've been working with over the past six months. And it was actually one of the last tracks that we did um, just before lockdown. Um, so it's kind of summing up my past six months, I think. Matt Evans, thank you very much for coming on the show um, for a look at how the arts is looking. Uh, we will be checking in with you again, I'm sure. Um, this is a scoop on Sunday. The time is 11 minutes to nine. Right, let's take a look at the sports quickly. I'm joined now by Lauren McCann from our news team. Um, Lauren, where should we start with the sports? There were victories for Linfield and Coleraine, right? Yep, um, so this week Linfield maintained their 100% record um, to the Danske Bank Premiership. They edged Balamina 3-2 at the showgrounds. Navit Naziri scored the pick of the bunch, a superb curling effort into the top corner. Um, they joined Lauren and Crusaders as the only team to win their first two games so far. Um, the Invermen beat Carrick 2-1 and Crusaders beat um, Cliftonville in the North Belfast Derby 1-0. As you said, Coleraine recorded their first win of the season, a good 3-0 away victory to Portadown. And nine men, Glen Avon, managed to hold on for a point against Glen Torn. And more in point, also defeated Dungannon 2-0. All right, what about rugby? If you're not into... If if you're not into football, was there any good news for rugby? Yes, so Ireland were on this weekend, but resumed their Six Nations campaign and they recorded a commanding 50-17 victory over Italy and it moved them to the top of the table and keeps their destiny in their own hands. They scored seven tries. Lancer duo and debutants Hugo Keane and Will Connors were among the scorers and they now know a bonus point victory over France next week in Paris. We'll see them clinch the championship for the fifth time. And the, the Pro 14 Leinster? Yes, yeah, so the champions eased to a 63-8 win over Zebri in Dublin and it extended their winning record to 22 games in the Pro 14. They scored nine tries, including two from their new boy Dan Sheenan and it helped their provincial side to their third win out of three in the conference. All right, and Gaelic as well, the season came to the, an end this weekend. Uh, who, who came away uh, with a smile on their face? Well, Kerry were the big winners. Um, they claimed their 21st Division 1 title. They beat Donegal by 218 to 10 points. At the other end, um, Antrim overcame Wa Waterford on Saturday, but results elsewhere means they stay in Division 4 next season as Limerick and Wicklow were promoted to Division 3. Down moved up to Division 2 after Longford conceded their final league game of the season and Armagh sealed their return to Division 1 as they beat Clare at Cusack Park. We've got a brand new podcast this week, Lauren. You're involved in it. It's called The Sporty Scoop. We've really taken the Spice Girls uh, vibe. Um, the Sporty Scoop is going to be at Wednesdays, 2 p.m. Uh, we're tweeting about it right now, so if you're interested, you can follow us there. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about what The Sporty Scoop is all about? So The Sporty Scoop is going to be hosted by myself, along with Tierna Kelly and Mark McKillen. And it's brand new, as you said, and we're talking all things sport. So both at Queen's and across the province, across multiple different sports, Gaelic, football, rugby. Um, this week, the first episode, we're talking about the impact of COVID on sports, both at local level at Queen's and on elite level, and also the issues surrounding that, such as the spectators and whether you think you should pay for live streams to watch the games. And we'll take a more in-depth look at the Ireland Six Nation win over Italy. Brilliant. So if you're interested in sport, that's the place to be. The Sporty Scoop, Wednesday, 2pm on Queen's Radio, and it'll be in all your usual podcast places as well. Thank you very much, Lauren. Uh, Lauren there from our news team. I think we can now go straight as we near uh, 9 p.m. to our trending expert, Claudia Savage, who is still in self-isolation. Claudia, can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me okay, Tom? Fantastic. Listen, um, it's, has it now been just over a week since you've been in isolation? How's it going? 
yeah, it's going okay. I'm out on Thursday, so the end is the side. And what have you been watching? You've been keeping yourself busy, I'm sure, with plenty of television. What are your top picks of isolation TV? Well, definitely, I binge-watched The Haunting of Hill House, which it was out on Netflix about two years ago. It was one of those ones I always said I was going to watch. Finally got down to it. Couldn't turn it off. Literally watched the whole season. It was amazing. Um, how many how many episodes so, were in a season? You binged it, did you? Yeah, there's 10 episodes. I think I'm pretty sure they're all an hour long. So that was a good couple of days. And um, what did but you think of it? then I was even happier to see that the creators have a new show that only came out recently. It's The Haunting of Bly Manor. Oh. It's been in the top 10 trend of, of Netflix for the past couple of weeks. So The Haunting of Hill House, followed by The Haunting of Blythe Manor. Uh, are you recommending them? They're your picks for Isolation TV? I recommend The Haunting of Hill House, but The Haunting of Bly Manor was a complete letdown compared to its predecessor. No way! I am very happy for you, but honestly, it was so... It had nothing that made the original so good, which is so strange considering it was nearly the all same creators and even the same actors that had amazing performances in The Haunting of Hill House. In Haunting of Bly Manor, maybe it's because it's set in England and there's some very unconvincing accents, but definitely wouldn't recommend The Haunting of Bly Manor. Well, what I can say, I do know that The Haunting of Blythe, Mather is Blythe Manor is based on a book by Henry James called Turn of the Screw, which is a fantastic play um, and a fantastic opera. If anyone is ever interested, you should watch that, but maybe not The Haunting of Blythe Manor. Uh, right, positive recommendations for the week then, Claudia. A new season of a television show on Netflix. Yes, my next guest was David Levin's out. So I watched the first episode of the season, which is his interview with Kim Kardashian, which is really, really interesting, completely showing a different side to her, especially for people that maybe don't know a lot about, about the Kardashians. It showed her in a real different light in the way that she's typically portrayed in the media. So I'm excited to watch the rest of the episodes, other people that you're going to see on the rest of the season. He'll be interviewing Robert B. Jr., Dave Chappelle, and Lizzo. So if you're like any of those people or the people that you maybe want to see what all the hype's about, then he's a really good insight in some of those major figures. So that's my next guest with David Letterman. The first series, I think, had Obama and uh, a few other uh, really significant figures as well. So that's likely to be a, a great second series. Right, anything else like, that's new this week, Claudia? There's a lot of new music videos out this week. So there's Ariana Grande's Position video, Little Mix, their Sweet Melody video which is also a promo for their X Factor style show, The Search, it's on BBC. If that's sort of not your thing, if you're not really a pop, Stormzy has a new music video out. And as I'm sure that anyone who is excited about it already knows, Harry Styles' golden music video is out tomorrow. All right, well, if you're into that, he's out tomorrow. Be there or be square. Uh, uh, plenty of new music out this week. Ariana Grande as well? Uh-huh, Ariana Grande, her position music video was out week and her album is expected to be out by the end of the month so if you're excited about that then it's something to look forward to but if you're looking for a number one spot she will have some competition because drake and adele's albums are also supposed to be out by the end of the month so definitely a lot of big new music coming out if you if you're in a really sad mood then you can listen to adele's new album which is <laughs> undoubtedly will make you cry as she yeah, always does there will be new additions to everyone's cry playlist i think <laughs> Claudia, thank you so much for talking to us there. That's Claudia Savage from our news team chatting to us from uh, self-isolation. Well, that is us. We will not be here next week. The team is taking a well-deserved week off from the scoop on Sunday. However, keep your eyes peeled for a spooky surprise announcement midweek. Your weekend might not be left without any scoop. 
So uh, keep your eyes out for a special announcement from us. Uh, don't forget the Sporty Scoop, Wednesday, 2 p.m., then the Mental Health Scoop, Friday, 10 a.m., and we will see you back on The Scoop on Sunday in two weeks' time. Remember, you can send us your stories. Just email uh, thescoop at queensradio.org. Thank you to my news team at The Scoop, Kirsty King, Claudia Savage, Neve McMullen, Keelan Donaghy, Lauren McCann, Rebecca Dobbin Donaghy, Huda Albagali, and Amy Bell. Thank you to Amy Murray, our head of social media, who's been posting away all night. Thank you to Odrin Johnson, uh, Scoop editor, for clipping up our show, getting it all out in social media. Uh, more thank yous. Thank you to Queen's Radio's head of tech, Dara Tibbs. He's got us on the air this evening. And thank you to our much beleaguered station manager, Hebe Lawson. Uh, straight after this, you will hear a song uh, by Adam's Number, picked by Matt Evans, called uh, Malibu. Um, thank you for your company this evening. This has been The Scoop on Sunday. Night.